All right, good morning, Village Church. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. My name is Michael Fueling, the lead pastor here at the church. Most weeks I get to open up the Bible and teach it. So if you do me a favor, would you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So there, there are these moments in life where we become something that we are not ready for, we are not equipped for, and most likely we are going to fail at. I'd like to share with you a few of these moments in my life, and this message is titled, Become Who You Are, Become Who You Are, because there are moments where we become something, and now I have to figure out how to become what I now am. Now, this will make sense in a moment. The first enormous moment of my life where I was declared to be something and then had to figure out how to be that was when I got married. I would like to show you a picture of our wedding day and my Bozo the Clown borderline afro. True story, I just gotta take a moment. <clears throat> uh, this almost didn't happen because my wife threatened me and she said if I was gonna shave my head because I thought I looked stupid because it was like bald and thin and then Bozo the Clown around the sides. And then she basically said, do you want me as your wife? If you want to get married to me, uh, keep your hair. And so I was like on the fence and decided, no, she's worth it. So I knew in like 10 years, I was going to look back on this moment and hate my hair. And I do. So that's what I look like with hair. Now you guys can get that out of your system. Um, but I thought truly that I was going to be the greatest husband on the planet. And I think my wife probably deep down thought, you know, she is going to be like, the stellar wife. I mean, I had read every book you could possibly find on marriage. I mean, I'd filled my brain with the best content you can possibly imagine, and I was obsessed with learning about marriage. And then I got married, and I had to quickly realize <clears throat> I am a terrible husband. I have no idea how to do this. I know what it takes here. There are certain things you're supposed to be able to do, but I now had to figure out how to become who I was. I now was a husband, and now I had to figure out how to become a husband. Nobody had ever taught me how to shepherd and care for a woman's soul. I mean, that does not come naturally, by the way. I don't know if you know that, right? And so I got married, and two days into this, I realized this is not going to go well. I am not a good person. This is hard. I am selfish. And my wife is saying, amen, right? <clears throat> She's over there watching, right? And, you know, there's this Michael here with so much self-confidence. Like, I'm just going to master this thing. And then I realized that I had to begin the process to become who I actually was. I had to learn how to become a husband who is learning how to care for and shepherd a woman's soul. And by the way, I'm hoping when I've been married for 40 years, I'll be a little bit closer to that. Um, but this is one of these circumstances where a pastor gets up and magically sprinkles fairy dust over my head, and then all of a sudden, I'm a husband. Like, what is that? What dad, uh, father-in-law, gives away a 20-year-old to an imbecile who has no idea to shepherd how a girl... Anyway, sorry, I'm kidding. He's over in the back. Um, the next big moment in my life where I was given a responsibility that I was not yet prepared for was the day when I became a dad. And uh, you'll see my hairline is receding. She has not yet allowed me to cut off my hair. Again, I was begging her, can I please buzz my head? Her answer was no. Um, but this was uh, honestly one of those moments where I don't know what God is thinking to give people children. We have no idea what we're doing. Now, I thought I was going to be an awesome dad. I'm like, I'm going to be one of the most amazing dads on the planet. I'm going to show all these bad dads what a good dad looks like. And then we took this baby home. And this baby didn't sleep for 14 months. I mean, <laughs> like, you want to see what, is, what you are at your worst? Deprive yourself of sleep for long periods of time, and you will figure out what you're really capable of. And I thought, I'm going to nail this thing. I've got the dad thing down. And then I had a, I had a kid. 
and I realized I need to learn to become who I am. Uh, this is going to be a long process for me to learn what it really means to be a dad. And then I had two girls, and everything's calm, cool, collected. And then this villain comes into my home, a son. <laughs> this crazy, insane, rambunctious child who wants to destroy. And all of you who had, who had sons first, you're like, oh, that's easy. Girls are walking the, walking the park here. But I'm telling you, then I had to learn this thing all over again. And uh, doesn't my wife look amazing for just having had a baby? Now, true story, I'm bloated in this picture. I want to tell you why. Um, <laughs> because... The day before uh, Elliot, our oldest, was born, um, I had what's called a lactose attack. Now, you may not know what a lactose attack is, but all of a sudden your body's like, I reject lactose, and I will put you in a physical miserable pain in your stomach for multiple days um, for no reason whatsoever. Apparently my stomach was done eating lactose. So um, I was sitting there, and I woke up early that morning, these deep, deep, deep pains. And when I realized, oh no, my wife is going to go into labor, we're going to have the baby, I thought, how am I going to do this? I can't even stand. So my wife is like in labor, and I go to the doctor. I'm like, yeah, I have a serious problem. And the doctor's like, yeah, your wife, she's over there. Go, stop talking to me. And I'm like, no, like, it feels like my stomach is just churning, and there's sharp pains. And he says, yeah, like, does it come in, in waves, and it comes and goes, and it feels like it's... And I'm like, these are not sympathy pains. These are real and so for the whole like, first week of, our, of having Elliot, I was in total misery. That is a fake smile, I just want you to know. All I can think about. And so to settle my stomach, genius, I didn't know it was lactose intolerance. So I just got downed milk, right? Which just made it even, even worse. Um, but all at once, I become, I become a dad. And I learned a whole bunch of things, but I was not equipped to be a good dad. I had to learn to become who I now was. Well, the third major thing in my life is when I went from being a youth pastor to a pastor. And uh, this was um, one of the most interesting transitions for me because as a youth pastor, I could be goofy and I could work with kids and students who are malleable and formable and teachable and trainable. And then I got to work with adults. And basically, you're like a big youth group, but your hearts are a lot harder, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, like old dog, new tricks, that whole thing, like grinned in my ways, not going to change, you know, like that whole thing. You get a kid, and they're so much more malleable, and it's so much easier to work with them. And, but for me, there were things that I wasn't allowed to do as a senior pastor that I was allowed to do as a youth pastor, like the games we played up front. Apparently, they weren't allowed or welcomed. Um, now I know. So anyways, um, but it was this huge thing where in a moment, I now become a lead pastor of a church, but I had no idea how to really do it well. And, and for the rest of my life, you learn, you keep learning to become who you actually are. And then we think about the presidential elections. I just love using Donald Trump illustrations. Anybody else enjoy that? They're just fun. I'll just read this to you. So uh, Donald Trump has been, um, uh, we'll just say this, not doing things that um, look presidential. So people come to him and they say, why don't you act more presidential? And he says, my wife tells me I should be more presidential. My kids tell me I should be more presidential. And here's what he basically says. I'll become more presidential when I'm the president, right? Okay, so the phrase, that is not becoming, okay? I think that is a perfect illustration of it. But now you get it. There are things that you need, there are positions that we have that bear with them much weight and much responsibility, and you need to learn how to become who you actually are. So here is my question for you, Village Church. Who are you? What is your position? Who are you? What's the question? Who are you? I'm going to tell you the answer. You're not going to probably respond to the answer. 
And then what I want to do is show you the depth and the beauty and the meaning of the answer. Little church, you are the church. Now, you need to learn to become the church. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were adopted as a son, you were given an inheritance, and now you are declared to be the church. Here's the problem. You have no idea what it means to be the church until you start being the church and you learn how to do it. And you know what happens when somebody comes to Christ for the first time? You have no idea what to do. You don't even know how to read the Bible, some of you. You don't know what it looks like when you come into a church and what does it mean to interact and to engage and to serve and to give and why we do these things. And to, You don't get it. And there are things naturally inside of us that are anti-church, that destroy the church or break the church down. And this is where Village Church, you need to learn what it means to become the church. You need to learn how to be who you are. I want you to notice, though, this is not called be who you are. It's become who you are. Because be who you are is a finger-wagging point. Be who you are. Be a man. Step up. Act like it, right? I don't know about you, but if someone looks at you and says, be patient, Act like it. Like, that doesn't work for me. Patience is developed usually through massive failure, okay, in my life. I don't know about you, okay? Um, great virtues and qualities are, are worked out in me in the hard knocks of failure and trying and praying and getting on my face. I can't just look at somebody and say, be who you are, because that's not how people grow or change. I want you to notice what we call this. Become who you are. This is an invitation for everyone who is trusted in Jesus to go on the lifelong journey to figure out how to become who you are, how to actually become the church. So I want to spend this time helping you figure this out. Number one, you know it's become who you are. I want you to remember, as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I want you to remember Paul's goal in Ephesians chapter 3. His goal is to have a unified church. His goal is church unity. He wants a unified, transcultural Transracial, transgeographical, transnational, transgenerational church. He wants to take these Jews and these Gentiles and these various cultures from various generations and even various centuries, pluck them out and create one unified, missional, focused group of people under the banner of Jesus Christ. And so we get to verse uh, one in chapter four. Here's how he starts off He says this I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In short, I'm telling you, please become who you are. I want to call out four words. Number one is the word prisoner. If you don't know this, Paul has gone to jail for proclaiming and fighting for one church, Jew, Gentile, no longer just Jewish, no longer Gentile, one new body made up of different people from different cultures who speak different languages and have different ways of doing things. Um, this idea of the church was such a threat, particularly to the Jews, that they imprisoned him. And so I want you to understand first and foremost that Paul can sit from his prison cell and tell the church, join me in becoming who you are because he is not just preaching it, he's practicing it. And so Paul sits in prison and he's looking at these people and saying, look, you have no idea what it means to be the church. Now we need to figure out how to become who we really are. Number two, I want you to notice the word urge. I want you to notice the urgency in this. And I want to just stop for a moment and tell you why this is so pressing. Bill Church, if you do not become the church, people will go to hell. Do you hear that? If you don't become the church, 
people will go to hell. There is too much at stake for you to go to church and not become the church. Bill Church, I want to just say this again. If you don't figure out how to become the church, the implications are that your moms or your dads or your friends or your neighbors or your brothers or your sisters or your sons or your daughters or your grandkids or your great-grandkids, if you don't figure this out, the implication is that they will go to hell. Every single one of the five people getting baptized in this service and the two in the last service, here's what happened. Somebody was the church. Somebody did what the church does. Somebody opened their mouth and proclaimed to them with clarity and understanding the beautiful, compelling gospel message. Somebody had the guts to look at them and to say, your good works will never, ever, ever get you into heaven. Somebody loved them enough to make sure that they understood good people go to hell. Broken people who trust in Jesus are the ones who get saved and forgiven. Somebody had the guts to look at them and say, you're a sinner, but God loves you anyways. And his love is seen that he gave his only son who went to the cross for your sins in your place. Somebody was the church to each of these people, whether it was their mom or their dad, a pastor or a friend. And when the church is not the church, people go to hell. The stakes are way too big for you to just come and attend church. What I want to invite you to is to learn how to become the church and not just attend the church. And this is just a syndrome in American churches. You can attend, but you're not expected to become. And what I'd love to see at Village is to see Village Church become the church and change destinies forever and to be able to be a part of people's stories and to say, because I was the church, I got to watch this person in my home or at church or one of my friends hear the good news of Jesus. I got to watch their eternal destiny flipped upside down, transformed, their life turned inside out. I got to see that because I was the church. If the church doesn't learn to do its job, people will go to hell. We need to notice the third word, worthy. Uh, worthy has two aspects to this, and it means weighted, okay? And here's what it means. You, church, are given a calling, and it's not just a calling like being a barista at Starbucks, okay? It's way bigger, way more meaningful, way more eternal than being a dad, than being the president of the United States, than being a pastor, than being a husband, You becoming the church is the most important part of your life because you are affecting people's eternal destinies everywhere you go when you are the church. This is worthy, it is weighted, it is heavy. If the being in the church is something you just do on a Sunday and it's not that important to you, I want you to hear me, you've missed the whole point. And I love you so much to say, God is not inviting you to some kind of judgmental, be the church. He's inviting you right now to learn to become the church. So here's what I don't need. I don't need you to come through these doors knowing it all, knowing how to be the church, knowing what it means, having your whole life together. Here's what we need. People who are committed to learning what it means to become the church. That's what we need. Some of you, you're thinking, I've never done it before. So the first step that you take is actually sitting down with a pastor or a church leader or somebody you know who loves Jesus and saying, I kind of just want to learn more about the Bible. That's where you start. So wherever you're at, whether you're just an attender, whether you're ambivalent, whether you're coming every single Sunday but you're not engaged, there is a next step for you to learn how to become the church. 
The second meaning to this word worthy, we have weighted, but it also has to do with the idea of weights and counterbalance. So if you notice in the first three chapters of Ephesians, it was all about truth, doctrine, theology, okay? And the second half of the book, where we're starting today, chapters four through six, is all about application, so what, what does this mean in your life? Some of you love the theology and you don't like the application. Some of you love the application. You're like, I could go without the theology. And I just, I just want to take a moment and talk to you for a moment because what Paul wants is for you to live a worthy life and have a worthy calling. It's counterbalanced. So here's what that means. It means that for those of you who are so smart, you could talk theological loops around people in your life, and yet you do not know how to actually apply this in your life and love people, and you have a wife and kids who hate you even though you're really smart, you're like off balance. It's like somebody who has one huge arm, right, and one little arm, and they walk around like this, and you're like, look how big my arm is. Look how big my arm is. And you're like, well, you look stupid, because that's not what this is about. This is not about a big arm. It's about balance. It's about you need to learn the theology and then you need to learn the skill. If you're going to be balanced, you have to have both. Okay, let's be honest. 50 years ago, you could go to church and you could just say, I'm a blue collar dude. All I just want to know is what to do. Tell me the so what's. I'm not into that theology stuff. I want you to hear me. If you have um, the so what's down, but you don't know the why, you will be gullible, pushed around with every shifting philosophy in this world if you're not grounded in doctrine. Doctrine. I want to give you an illustration of this. I wrote the word gullible on the ceiling. Check it out. Some of you looked. You're clearly not grounded theologically. It's funny. I wanted to look. I didn't even write it. And I'm like, don't, don't look, Michael. Whatever you do, don't look. Don't look. Just stay away. It's fine. You cannot have one without the other. So in child rearing, when you raise a kid in your home, here's what you do. You teach them the application, the practical, the so what first. And then as they get older and they start asking why, 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 then you teach them the doctrine. But I want you to hear me. In disciple making, with anybody over the age of four years old, that is not how it works. You start with the why and then you get to the what. And the reason you do that is because you ground them in truth. And then out of that truth, you teach them the so what. If they are not grounded in the so what, they will be tossed around with every new idea that comes through culture or whatever they're listening to or whatever media is, is informing their heart and their soul. If you're not grounded and you're just really practical, hear me, you're gullible and you're susceptible and this culture will tear you down. There's too much at stake to be dumb. On the other hand, if you are the genius whose family hates you, you are the worst to know and to not do is dangerous. So I just want to tell you if, you, if you're the person with a big arm walking around and you're saying, check out how big my arm is. I'm so smart. I'm so awesome. I'm so godly. And you do not live a life of love and play it out. You're off balance. Here's what Paul says. Live a life that is worthy. Become who you are. This calling is weighted and the calling is to balance. Be smart and be loving. If you get one without the other, you're going to miss the point. He goes on number four, this word, the calling. I want to just, I want to talk to you about the calling in my life and becoming who I am. Um, I am impatient. <laughs> That's why I talk so fast, by the way. By God's grace, I am becoming, don't hear the word patient, more patient. 
Some of you are like, all right, Jesus, speed it up in the sky. <laughs> you know, we could do a little bit with a little bit more patience in our, in our pastor here. My wife just said amen really loud. I don't know if you heard that. I'm the husband. I'm just about, talking about different aspects of my life. So they're not all deeply emotional, but they're all relevant parts of my life. I'm the husband of a counselor and a mother. Um, it's what my wife does, and she's a mom. She runs a counseling center. I am learning, by God's grace, uh, to be the husband of a small business owner. She just purchased a flower shop. I'm learning that. That's a whole different world when a small business intrudes into your personal home, right? And if you've ever started a business, you know that. And so these are things that I, I, I have learned over here. This is what I am, and I'm learning to become these new things. I'm a dad of small children. By the grace of God, I am becoming a dad of pre-adolescence. And some of you are like, you have no idea. You just wait till they are teenagers. I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> I'm just going to live in this moment. I'm going to enjoy the pre-adolescence as long as I humanly possibly can. Uh, but by God's grace, I need to figure out how to be a whole new kind of dad to pre-adolescent girls and then this little violent human being. I am 30 pounds too fat. <laughs> by the grace of God, I am becoming shredded. All right, I lied. I'm 40 pounds is like, 30 pounds is like, all right, you're looking okay. 40 is probably where I should be. Like, that's ideal. I didn't want to lie. I wrote it down. I'm like, eh, this kind of stretching the truth, right? But being the church, learning how to become who you are, there is too much at stake for us not to do that. And we need to fight for this, which brings us to number two in your notes. Fight for who you are. What does Paul want? Unity. Unity from different people, from different cultures and different languages and different nations and different backgrounds and different heritages, even different values. He wants these people to come together in one body under the banner of Jesus Christ and to be on the same page and to love ruthlessly. That's what he wants. Now, here's what I've learned. Church unity requires a fight. You have to fight for it. There is something predisposed in all of us that we are anti-church unity by nature. It's like we are naturally prone to do things that disintegrate the unity of the church, and we need to go against the grain of our tendencies. And here's what I've learned being a pastor. One of my greatest responsibilities is to fight for the unity of the village church from top to bottom, from the bottom to the top. And when we find unity threats, to go after them on the front end before they grow deep roots and strangle out the joy and the unity of our church. There are two major fronts, by the way, that we find that we have to fight for unity. Number one, we're fighting it in our own flesh. Do you know who the greatest threat to the unity of the village church is? You. Me. I am amazed. My capability and tendencies to want to do things that disintegrate unity. And I know because I have watched you, I am not the only one. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm not going to admit that. You are the greatest threat to the unity of the church, and there's something inside of you that will propel you to do subtle things, subtle manipulations, subtle stories about other people in small groups that you don't think anybody will know about. There are subtle things that you and I are prone to do to dismantle and disintegrate the unity of the church. I found the greatest threat to the unity of the church is me and you. And the second threat to the unity of the church are simply people in this church, maybe other churches, who are just fighting for disunity. 
Maybe they don't even have the spirit of God. Maybe they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. But there are people whose behavior and decisions regularly, not, they're, not, they're not just struggling with it. It's not these subtle things. But there are people who almost seem like they have committed their lives to breaking down the unity of the church. It's not just in me. And these are the things that we have to fight for. I want you to know that our elders um, have enjoyed a very unique, special season of joy and unity. Um, and we fight. I mean, we fight for this. We make it hard to become an elder. We make the process unnecessarily long sometimes because it is so fragile in any team. Unity is so hard to come by and so easy to lose in just a moment. But here's what you find. When you have a leadership team that is unified, it trickles throughout every part of an organization everywhere. You can feel it. You can sense it. You know it. Rumors don't start floating around. When there is unity at the top, then it trickles down and we fight for this with all of our might and we do this to protect the village church at every corner. I hope you know that. There are two ways that we need to fight for union. Number one, verse two, uh, it says this, we bear. It says, bear with one another in love with all humility and gentleness and patience. Here's what bear implies. Bear implies that there is a weight, there is a pressure on your shoulders that another person is putting on you. There is a weight or a pressure on your soul or your shoulders that somebody else is putting on you. And this somebody else is a Christian, that there are people in the church, maybe, maybe they're really annoying or irritating or frustrating, or there's a culture clash or a personality difference, but whatever it is, there is this weight. Maybe it's a struggle that they have. Maybe it's a sin that they're trying to overcome and they're just battling. But when you have to bear with somebody, that means this, that there's somebody in the church who, whatever it might be, they're putting a weight or a pressure on your soul. And here's your job. Your job is not to become irritated, but to do what? To bear with one another in what? Love. Love does not roll its eyes. Love does not um, subtly gossip or manipulate or talk trash behind someone's back. And this, this is one of the things that if you're going to live in a unified church, you need to know. I will drive you nuts, you will drive me nuts, and you will drive each other nuts at times. But we bear, we put up with each other's shortcomings, and we do this with love. I'm going to tell you why. Because every single day, there are people in this church that are bearing with you. And you may not even know it. And you look at other people, and you want to look at them and say, bear with me, and sometimes we need to bear back. And so if you think that other people aren't bearing with you, then you can think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Okay? So I just want to look at you and say, number one, give to others what you expect them to give to you. And number two, we bear because every single day and every moment, Jesus bears with us. And never once does he look at us with condemnation or a wagging finger or shame, but grace and mercy and love pour out of his eyes and they pour out of his word. And so when you understand how much Jesus has to put up with your shortcomings and your irritancies and your annoyances, when we start to realize that, when other people do that to us, we bear and we do it in a spirit of love because we have received this exact kind of love. The second way we do this, we fight for unity, is by protecting. Love these words, eager to maintain. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We maintain that which is prone to break down or become unruly. My car wants to break down about once a month. Don't know what it is. Just always something. Uh, I'm amazed. They just break, 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 break. Constant maintenance. Anyone else relate to that? It's like, why, why do cars do that? It's like everything in this world. Oh, yeah, the second law of thermodynamics, all things tend towards chaos and disorder, right? But then there's a whole other set of things that become unruly. 
like your lawn. Right? Have you ever noticed that if you don't pay very careful attention to your lawn, weeds will take over and completely destroy it, right? And so there are things in life like children that are naturally unruly, okay? And you need to protect them from themselves and from the weeds that naturally want to take over. Some things are just prone to break down. And here's what he says. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. So three realities about church unity. Number one, it can be lost. You need to maintain it because it can go away just like that. So on our end, as leaders, as elders and deacons and staff, we fight for this as much as we possibly can. We have values put into place that help us go after threats to our unity real time so that we can address them. But you know what? Um, unity can be lost even on the lower levels, right? It can be lost at the masses. It can be lost with divisive people. It can be lost in community groups. It can be lost regularly. And so you need to understand that unity is precious and valuable and can go away just like that. And when every person from the top to the bottom and the bottom of the top fights for it, it can change an entire culture. Number one, it can be lost. Number two, our unity requires the spirit. Some of you, uh, you will say, there are broken relationships all over my life. Well, why is it almost every single relationship in your life is broken? One of two reasons. Either one, you're not, as the Bible says, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not controlling you. Or number two, you don't have the Holy Spirit. I would contend that if all of the relationships in your, in your life are broken, that there's probably a lack of the Holy Spirit in you. And this is one of the most concerning things. And there's some people, they say, my relationship with my parents is broken. I have a long line of friendships behind me. I have very few people I can call close friends. And people are loyal to me even though I treat them badly. That might be a sign of the lack of the Holy Spirit. But here's the symptom number three of unity. Peace. Here's how you know a church has peace. You go there, give it a month or give it a two, and here are some things that you're going to find if you're a Christian that you'll be able to say about a unified church. I am safe. I am home. I am loved. And they're not just propositions that we say. Like They're actual, tangible, experiential things. You walk into a church and you say, I am safe, I am home, and I am loved. That is a place where peace exists. Finally, number three, know who you are. So verses four to six is sort of like a battle cry. Um, many um, uh, theologians and scholars think this is actually a creed from the early church uh, that they pulled, that Paul pulled out and put here. So I'm going to read it for you, and then we're going to go through one by one. Uh, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's the common word that comes? One. One, 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 one. Seven times, one. One body and spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So let's just take a look um, at each of these, and then we're going to end on baptism, and then we're going to celebrate some baptisms. I'm so excited. There's one body. There is not two bodies. This, for me, is a little confusing because you go back over the generations and you have the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church and this church and that church and this denomination and non-denomination. I, I wonder... When we get to heaven, what kind of music we're going to sing? Anybody else want to that, right? Is it going to be the music in your church, which is, of course, the best ever, of course? Um, wherever Matt's leading, I'm sure you're going to be the chief worship leader. It's going to be awesome. I don't know. Like, I wonder, like, what is going to be the style? Like, what is going to be the style? Will there, like, 
How are people going to dress? How does God preserve cultures from all different generations and centuries and languages and approaches into this one service, if you will, under the banner of Jesus Christ? I have no idea, but here's what I know. There will be one body. There always has been one body. There never will be two bodies. There may be churches, right, that do weird things and dumb things. There may be a billion denominations, but under Jesus, there's only one church, and that one church is made up of people who have trusted in Jesus, that is it. Before Jesus came, right, those people would be the ones who looked forward and believed that the Messiah was coming to pay for their sins. Now we look back and say, we believe that the Messiah has come and paid for the price of our sins. There is only and ever will be one body despite the fact that there are local, national, geographic representations. There is one church. I imagine a world, now some of you may not know some of these names and some of you will, but I imagine a world where the greatest and most influential people in Christendom all get together and are asked to plant a church. So I'll give you some names. Tertullian from the 3rd century. Augustine from the 4th century. Francis from the 14th century. John Calvin from the 16th century. John Wesley from the 18th century. Jonathan Edwards from the 19th century. C.S. Lewis from the 20th century. And John Piper from the 21st century. All men who have drastically transformed the way we understand Christianity, uh, most of which for the better. Imagine putting all these guys into a church and saying, plan a church, get the same philosophy of ministry. I mean, they come from different languages and backgrounds and understanding and culture and methods. And I mean, everything is fundamentally different about these guys. It's crazy. But you know what they all have in common? Jesus Christ. One church. And somehow, if you got these guys together, they would be able to figure out by the Spirit of God how to plan a church together and be unified and be on the same page because we have one mission. That God figured out. One spirit. Way back in the day, I was a youth pastor in misery. I mean, Missouri. Lots of mosquitoes, very hot. So I was, it was a conservative Presbyterian church, and then we partnered with a four square charismatic church. Go figure. The two should never partner. Very, very few things in common except for Jesus. So we uh, get together, and there's about 20 kids in our youth group, and then there's a few, like 10 or so kids in their youth group, and I'm teaching, and one of their leaders says to me, yeah, but Michael, um, you don't have the Holy Spirit. I said, oh, cool. All right, good to know. Thanks for the revelation. So <laughs> how's that? Well, you weren't baptized in the, in the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you get baptized in the Holy Spirit? And I knew the answer. I just want to hear him say it. Um, you need to speak in tongues. Okay. So I speak in English. Is that a tongue? Well, no, not, well, okay, so anyway, so you need to speak in tongues. All right, I got it. I'm with you here. So now, because I don't speak in what you call tongues, now I don't have the Holy Spirit. That's, that's how this thing works. And so we go back and forth. And by the way, just, let's just make this very clear. Um, let's just quote the Bible. Do all speak in tongues? No. no. Okay, good. We're clear on that. That's done. Um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you were all baptized into one spirit when you trusted in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. There's not multiple baptisms of the Holy Spirit. You get baptized once when you trust in Jesus. Just wanted to divide this room real quick while we're at it, okay? Um, so now that we got that off, off the table here, okay, um, here's what you need to know. There's one Spirit. So I look at him and I say, what happens when the Spirit inside of me says something different than the Spirit inside of you? Which one is right? But here's what we know. The Spirit is not divided, is he? The Spirit will never give mixed messages, the Spirit will always be clear. The Spirit will always be orderly. The Spirit will always be biblical. And so here's what we need to figure out is what do you do when two different Christians are convinced, convicted that the Holy Spirit is telling them two different things? God says that oh, we should do this. The Holy Spirit told me to do this. The Holy Spirit told me you were this. The Holy Spirit told me you were that. And at the end of the day, there's one Spirit 
And when two people apparently filled with the Holy Spirit can't come eye to eye with this, you need a mediator. You need a mediator, and you need to stand up under the authority of the Word of God and let it declare what is truth. But there's only one Spirit. There's only one hope. I'll tell you, one of the ways I know the Spirit of God is in you is because you have this hope. Give me a new body on a new earth under the Lordship of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Get rid of sin. That is your hope. Forget about how you think the end times are going to play out for a moment. You put John Calvin and John Piper and St. Augustine and St. Francis into a room and you say, let's forget about all of our ideas about how all this is going to end in a tribulation and a rapture and a millennium and all that kind of stuff. Here's what we know. Give me Jesus. Come back soon. Judge the living and the dead. That's I want a new heaven and a new earth. Bring it on right now. You have one hope. You have one hope. And it is in Jesus and he will raise your bodies from the dead. You have one Lord. There's one Jesus. There might be cults who claim the name of Jesus, but that does not make them truly a part of the church of Jesus. There might be cults that declare false doctrine, like, for example, you were saved by good works. Always a cult. Always not right. Always disentangles and destroys the message of the gospel. Okay? Always wrong. And when somebody says that, they might claim Jesus, but that is not what Jesus teaches in the Bible. Works-based religion is not true. It is not what the Bible says. God says salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. Good. There is one Lord. Now, when people sometimes come to me and say, well, my Jesus would never do that, it doesn't matter who your Jesus is. Because you know what I want to know? I want to know what is the Jesus of the Bible. Sometimes the Jesus of the Bible kills people. Sometimes he comes in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord and does crazy things. Sometimes he overturns tables. Sometimes he hugs people that you're like, you shouldn't be hugging them. She's, she's committing adultery. Like, sometimes he does things that are completely outside of the ordinary, and you can never quite pin the guy down, but he's always perfectly righteous. And Jesus isn't as simple as just saying, well, he's my Jesus. But you know what? He is revealed in the Word of God as fully God, fully man. There is one Jesus, despite who claims him, there is only one true Jesus as revealed in Scripture. There's one faith. This could be interpreted one of two ways. It, mean, it could either mean there's only one Christian faith or religion, or it could mean there's only one means by which we come to Christ, which is by faith. Either way, there's not multiple legitimate religions or means of salvation in this world. There is one ultimate faith, and that is with Jesus as our head, and salvation is only by faith in what he did on the cross for our sins and in his resurrection. That's it. There's one religion. This whole idea that there's multiple religions. If you're a Roman and you're hearing this in the first century, your mind is kind of blown. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's like multiple gods. No, there's one God and Father. That's it. I mean, this whole creed bashes into the face of Roman polytheism. It bashes it into pieces and says, no, we are fundamentally separate. All religions are not created equal. There's one faith. There's one God. There's not multiple God. And he's revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we get to this word baptism. There's one baptism. Now, this means one of two things. I think it actually probably means both. There's water baptism, which is what we're going to celebrate in just a moment. Uh, water baptism is when you are immersed underwater as a sign of what God has done in your heart. But then there's spirit baptism, which the Bible talks about as well. Spirit baptism is when you trust in Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's called baptized into Jesus, baptized in the Spirit. It means you are fully identified with and connected with Jesus before you were anything else. Before I'm a husband or a pastor or a dad or a guitarist or whatever, I am a Christian. You're baptized into the Holy Spirit. And I wanna, here's what I want to do. I want to just answer one simple question that many people have for me about baptism. They say in the New Testament, 
um, people would get saved on the road and they would baptize them right away. Why don't you do that? And I want to I help you understand something here because back in the first century, you really couldn't separate water baptism from spirit baptism. Like the church understood them to be fairly synonymous. So that once you got baptized, like these waters symbolized huge things for them. The idea that you could be saved and not baptized was a crazy thought for the first century. Crazy thought. And so it was always connected that if you're saved, you could get baptized. But here's what happened. In the first century, if you came to Jesus Christ, you were a part of a revolution that put your life at risk. This was no small manner to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. This was a big deal. And so when you came before somebody and said, I believe in Jesus, baptize me, you had already counted the cost. You already knew to a degree the threat it would be on your life and your livelihood and your joy and your happiness. So here's what happens in the 21st century America. It's easy. You want to get, free out, get out of hell free card. It feels right and good. It's easy to be a Christian, but here's what happens. Multiple people come and say, we want to be baptized. We want to be baptized. And we just say this. Coming to Christ is easy now. It's a lot harder in the first century. Give us three months. Give us six months. Let's just, let's just watch and see if the things of the Spirit start coming out in you. Because what I don't want to do is baptize you prematurely because I, sometimes I don't even know if you understand what this is. And so we just kind of wait. We don't do that to be unbiblical. We do it because baptism was a much more weighty experience then than it is for many people now. Baptism is just something you do. You get baptized as an infant. You have godparents. You have a party. You put on a white dress or whatever. And that's just what baptism is for many people. But in the church, baptism is very weighty and beautiful and important. And there's one baptism. There's one. And it happens when you trust in Jesus Christ. You're baptized in the Spirit. And this water baptism now symbolizes that.